0: So do we know the pain, the feeling of being an outsider, of needing to stay hidden from society? In the grand scheme of things, I would say many of us are probably lucky to say that we're not too acquainted with this feeling. But maybe we have had a taste of it. Maybe you had those times in grade school In middle school and high school where you were bullied or othered because you weren't like the others. So that was the case for me. I have wavy and curly hair in the South. It is an act of Congress to get it to stay straight and definitely get it to stay that way because of the humidity. And so I've grown to love it now, but back when I was in middle school, that was not the style at all. Straight and flat and slick was the only hairstyle that was in, and no matter what I did, my hair was always just the opposite. And so on top of that, I had braces, and on top of that, I had bad acne. Yeah, there's a reason why I didn't show a picture. So I definitely felt othered from the in crowd in middle school. But maybe it runs deeper than that for you. Maybe you have gone through difficult things in your life, different paths, twists and turns. Maybe some of them are your fault. Maybe some are no fault of your own that left you broken and ashamed for a season. Maybe you do have something that makes you different, whether that's the color of your skin, a different language you speak, a different ability, different identity, orientation, income level, occupation. We could go on and on and on. You know that feeling that of being judged, of being othered. Our Samaritan woman in our scripture passage for today knew that feeling very well. She lived and breathed it. So she went out of her way to stay hidden and out of the way from day-to-day society. Normally, that trip to get water from the well was a social occasion that all the women in the village would do together, early in the morning, not in the heat of the day. But she specifically went at a time when she would be alone so she would not be ostracized Others. As it says in our scripture reading, John chapter 4, starting in verse 4, Jesus had to go through Samaria. He came to a Samaritan city called Sychar, which was near the land Jacob had given his son Joseph. Jacob's well was there. Jesus was tired from his journey, so he sat down at the well. It was about noon. A Samaritan woman came to the well to draw water. Jesus said to her, give me some water to drink. His disciples had gone into the city to buy him some food. A Samaritan woman asked, why do you, a Jewish man, ask for something to drink for me? A Samaritan woman. Jews and Samaritans didn't associate with each other. So here we have a woman... Someone who is naturally on the margins of society. And then you add this additional layer that she is going to get water. A simple and routine task at a time when normally no one would be there. No one would be with her for reasons we don't know yet. And on top of that, there's this huge cultural divide between her and Jesus. A Jew and the Samaritans, they didn't talk to each other. So many layers so many boundaries, so many reasons why these two people, this woman and Jesus, should have just ignored each other. And yet, Jesus respects her, totally and absolutely. We see that Jesus engages her in this deep and rich theological discussion of all things. And the gospel shows that she, a Samaritan woman, thinks And responds and holds her own in her own right. All of this is meant to be a sharp foil to a character called Nicodemus. A Jewish religious leader who didn't get Jesus' teachings at all. So the cultural big guy that everybody would have respected. But he didn't get Jesus' teachings at all. Just one chapter prior in chapter 3. Let's look at this exchange starting in verse 10 of the Samaritan woman. Jesus responded, if you recognize God's gift and who is saying to you, give me some water to drink, you would be asking him and he would give you living water. The woman said to him, sir, I don't, you don't have a bucket and the well is deep. Where would you get living water? You aren't greater than our father Jacob, are you? He gave this well to us and he drank from it himself as did his sons and his livestock. Jesus answered, everyone who drinks this water will be thirsty again. But whoever drinks from the water that I will give will never be thirsty again. The water that I give will become in those who drink it a spring of water that bubbles up into eternal life. The woman said to him, sir, give me this water so that I will never be thirsty and I will never need to come here to draw water. And so then we move into this next passage of the scripture, which people tend to misunderstand a lot. In this next section, we bring our own cultural context and own understanding and modern day eyes to it instead of just reading the scripture for what it is. So in my very first New Testament class, my very first New Testament professor would make sure to say to me, don't read the Bible from what you've heard or your own cultural understanding, make sure you're looking at it first and foremost for what it is in its own context, seeing the scripture as it is presented on its own accord. So let's look starting in verse 16. Jesus said to her, go and get your husband and come back here. The woman replied, I don't have a husband. You are right to say, I don't have a husband, Jesus answered. You've had five husbands, and the man you are with now isn't your husband. You've spoken the truth. The woman said, sir, I see you are a prophet. So a lot of times, pastors, interpreters will look at this exchange and project lots of negative things onto this poor woman. We can look down at her because she had five husbands and a sixth man that she was not married to. But that, that is putting our own context and understanding of marriage and relationships onto this text. Because the reality is in that day and age, women, women had absolutely no say over their own marriages. Think about the birth narrative between Mary and Joseph. We never see an exchange of Mary explaining the situation to Joseph and begging forgiveness and begging Joseph to marry her because that's not the way that that marriage worked in that time. It was all up to the man. A divorce would have been because the man decided to leave the woman. A death of a husband, well, obviously that is never a woman's fault a lack of proposal, again, there was nothing this poor woman could do. So when we read the text for what it is, we see that scripture never tells us why this poor woman had been through five husbands, why the sixth man was refusing to marry her. So the women's Bible commentary speculates that, that this may have been a biblical tradition, the Jewish law of Leverite marriage in that day and age. So if you were unable to bear a son by the time your husband died, you were obligated by law to marry your husband's brother. And then if that brother died before you could bear a son, you were obligated by law to marry the next brother. And so on and so forth. So, if this commentary is right, and again, it's just a prediction, if this poor woman had been through five brothers with five of them dying, common sense would say by the time she got to the sixth brother, that brother probably thought she was cursed and probably wanted nothing to do with marriage, would you? So she was very likely ostracized for her society, regardless of the reason of the five husbands and the six not marrying her. Regardless of the reason, she was likely ostracized from society for something that was not her fault at all. That's the main point here. Something she could not control. But the point is, it looks like it was something that the whole community judged her for. And that she lived her life in secret because of. So this exchange she has with Jesus, it isn't condemnation. In fact, Jesus never calls any of this sin. He just states it as fact. It's all part of the theological discussion. It gives the woman eyes to see who Jesus is. That Jesus knows all of this without her having to say a word. She gets closer to the right answer by calling Jesus a prophet. And then later in their theological discussion, she gets to that pivotal moment where Jesus reveals that he is the Messiah, the one that she has heard about, the one they all are waiting for. And you know what's amazing about this whole exchange? Unlike Nicodemus, the man from chapter 3, the religious leader with all the expert knowledge in the world from chapter 3, The Samaritan woman, the unnamed Samaritan woman, is the one who instantly sees, believes, understands, and goes on to preach about it to anyone who will listen. And they, the outsiders, the dreaded Samaritans, they believe too. So in the end, she, the outcast woman, ends up becoming one of the early preachers. In the gospel of John. We see in verse 28. The woman put down her water jar and went into the city. She said to the people come and see a man who has told me everything I've done. Could this man be the Christ? And many Samaritans in that city believed in Jesus. Because of the woman's word when she testified he told me everything I've ever done. And thus in this passage, we see Jesus drawing the circle wider. We see Jesus challenging the very ideas of who is in and who is out in the kingdom of God. We see Jesus very vividly, very clearly, very intentionally reminding us that God's love for the world is God's love for the whole world. We're reminded of God's love for us exactly as we are. As different as we might be, despite what society might try to label us as. God's love for the whole world, even and maybe especially those folks on the margin. And here's a big one, friends. Here's a big one that is a true but tough teaching of the Christian faith. God's love, even maybe especially for those folks that we would call others. And for those folks, we would call our enemies. So during my time at Hyde Park United Methodist in Tampa, one of my favorite things that I did was interact with our open arms homeless ministry. So many times these folks were like our Samaritan woman. They were pushed to the margins of society, Just trying to not be noticed, work hard, get by, pull themselves up into stability. So we had a Bible study for these folks at 930. We usually had 15 to 20 people show up. It was right after we had offered them breakfast. And we noticed people would usually come to the Bible study first. You know, they didn't really feel welcome yet, despite our insistence into the worship service. But they would feel welcome into the Bible study. They sought to go to the well at noon when no one else would be there. And let me tell you, the theological discussions in that room were rich. Their faith was strong. I'll never forget their prayer and care for me, particularly during my pregnancy with Wyatt, which was nine months of all-day sickness. Yeah, and it was sustaining and invaluable. God was there with us, that little circle of friends, surrounded by everything that they had owned, reading from tattered Bibles that they carried with them from their life on the streets. And in reality, this is what the kingdom looks like. It's when people whose society says, these people shouldn't even cross paths learn to break bread with one another, and pray for one another. When we cross the lines of Jew versus Samaritan, gender roles, age differences, ability differences, to see each other as God sees us. So as we continue to live into this call to be a people who cultivate this safe place to explore your faith, What does that look like for us? What is our next step? What is our call into living into that? How can we continue to be the church where all are welcome? Where you don't have to have it all together to be welcomed here. To be noticed, to be appreciated, to be loved as soon as you walk through the door. Where your kids can dance in the back of the fellowship center, and that's okay. It's welcomed, even encouraged. You can dress casually or in your Sunday best, and that's okay. Society might label you as an other, but you will be welcomed and accepted and loved here. It's something that I've seen time and time again at this church. It's like baked into the DNA of who we are, and yet... It's a commitment we must continue to make in order for it to reign true. We must continue to be that place of welcome. We must continue to be a place of love. We must continue to be a place of respect. We must continue to be a place of care. So Jesus gave us the roadmap in this conversation with the Samaritan woman. And it is ours to pick up and decide where do we go and how do we live this out from here. So as we look forward to a time of welcome in our church with Easterific, with Palm Sunday, with Easter Sunday. May we be that safe place to explore your faith. May we extend invitations to those who are in need of a safe place to be loved and welcomed and to a church family. May we extend hospitality, warmth and welcome to all people that we see walk through here in the days to come. And may we continue to extend the circle of the kingdom being the people that Christ called us to be. Will you close with me in prayer? God, we thank you for the beautiful story and the bold witness of the Samaritan woman. Just as Jesus broke the barriers of society to reach out to the other, may we be empowered, emboldened, and encouraged to do the same. Amen. So friends, before you receive the benediction, I have a quick announcement. So today is our cost of poverty experience in this room. So we ask if you have the ability to consider staying behind and helping us put up chairs and help us flip the room for that event. But before you go from this place, before you go to do that, receive this benediction. So whether you're in a place today to where you feel like the Samaritan woman, where society has called you othered, you felt bullied, or whether you feel like God is calling you to notice the Samaritan women of our world, may we know that God's grace is with all of us. And may we seek to be people who receive God's grace and share God's grace without limits with this world. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen.